The reason we are studying the book of John goes back, obviously, before we started the series, but my, my goal was for us to actually see Jesus for who He is, what He was like, to get some sense of being there, like John talks about in 1 John, that what we've seen and heard, we declare to you that you might have fellowship with us, you might have in common the same experience. And I was particularly interested in doing that because so often, much in our world that claims to be representative of Jesus, churches included, looks nothing like Jesus and, and doesn't talk like Jesus, doesn't act like Jesus. And our goal is that, that Jesus would loom large to us, not, not just because of those who misrepresent him, but also because we live in a world full of, of literally tens of thousands of voices, many of them lying, that call us to the darkness uh, rather than to the light. And I hope with each successive passage that we've studied together that you have seen Jesus unveiled, and I hope that you are falling in love with him all over again. Our passage this morning, I trust, will continue that process. We're in John chapter 8. And we begin in verse 12. We're going to read down to verse 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. We're going to see that while we are very familiar with Jesus' statement, I'm the light of the world, we're going to see that what he was saying here is really stunning when we look at the background of it. He does so publicly in the face of determined, hateful opposition. And what he offers is exactly what every dying sinner needs and what every dying sinner should desire more than anything else in the world. But this passage continues to expose just how wicked, dishonest, and stubborn his detractors actually are, even though they wrap themselves in the robes of respectable religion. In the first part of verse 12, we see the declaration that Christ makes, a stunning declaration, I'm the light of the world. In the second part of the verse, we see the promise that goes with that. And then verses 13 through 19, the bulk of the passage focuses on the denial, the pushback that came to him. And finally, verse 20, we see glimmers of the invincibility 
of what Christ has come to do. Well, think with me first about this declaration that Christ makes. And I'm going to be honest with you, I'm very familiar with this. I'm the light of the world. I've heard it since I was a kid, but I had never thought about it in terms of the background of it and what Jesus is actually saying. And so, um, hopefully it will be a discovery for you as well. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Jesus has talked about His giving the water of life. He has referred to Himself as the bread of life, and now He uses that metaphor, that image of light. Now, what's significant about Jesus' words here is He says these words at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a feast that was in the fall, so about six months before the springtime feast, the time when He would be crucified. The Feast of Tabernacles was commemorating Israel's years wandering in the wilderness and, and how God took care of them. And it also looks forward to the Messianic age. Well, during that feast, there was a ceremonial lighting of the lampstands. Some say it happened just on the first day of the feast. Some scholars say it was on every day. Either way, it was part of the ceremony of this feast. And lighting the lamps recalled the fact that God led and protected Israel in the wilderness, in the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, that Shekinah glory, that dwelling place glory of God, the shining splendor of God, was that visible manifestation of God's presence with His people through all these years, from the time they left Egypt to the time that they entered Canaan. They were not alone. They were in the wilderness, but they were not alone. God was with them. And when Jesus describes Himself as the light, He is identifying Himself as Emmanuel, with us, God. He is pointing to Himself as that same Shekinah glory of God that is with His people. Furthermore, the Old Testament talks about the coming Messianic age in terms of light. You're familiar with a lot of these passages. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he that is God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So, these are two tribes that are in the north who are conquered by Assyria and taken captive. And it's referring to that, that in fact, when Isaiah writes, they're, they're beginning to undergo that great travail. But in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So, Galilee and the Sea of Galilee is in this same region of the northern tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. If you recall your uh, history of Israel, when the northern ten tribes split off, they, they never had a king who wasn't leading them into idolatry. They were idolatrous from the start, and they stayed idolatrous till their demise. And, and so, there was great darkness in this region. And yet, the prophet Isaiah speaks of a day when there will be a great light in this region. Well, Matthew picks up on this and notes the connection of this prophecy with Jesus' ministry in this very region, the region of Galilee. He was the great 
light. Isaiah 42, 5 through 7, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Now, what's interesting, this is part of the servant songs in Isaiah, referring not just to Israel, but to Israel's preeminent king, the Messiah. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisoner, those who sit in darkness. And then perhaps one of the most beautiful of all, Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 5. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. The promised Messiah would be a divine light, not just to the Jews, but to all nations on the earth, all the ethnicities. And so it's not without significance that Jesus not only says, I am the light, he says, I am the light of the world. Every tribe, every nation, every people, in every time and place, have only one light, Jesus, the Messiah. The salvation He brings is for all people, not just the Jews. He will not fail to rescue every single person who embraces Him as the light. So, no wonder then, early in John's gospel, the aged apostle writing at the end of the first century writes, in Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Paul expresses a similar concept when he talks about Jesus this way in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, the shining splendor of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as God the Son in the flesh, is the shining light of God's presence with humanity. As such, He brings the light of truth, breaking through the darkness of falsehood, revealing what the darkness obscures. He brings the light of of joy and hope to a world drowning in the darkness of despair, and He brings the light of life 
to a lost humanity dominated by death. If you turn from the light of truth, all you have left is lies. If you turn from the light of joy and hope, you are left in sorrow and despair. If you turn from the light of life, you have nothing to embrace but death. And the reality is that all of us are bound in darkness and in death from the start unless we turn to the light. So what evidence can you show? You're gathered here in a service of professing Christians. What evidence can you show that you are embracing Jesus as your light? That's different from, I'm a member of Hampton Park Baptist Church. That, that's different from, I grew up in a Christian home. That's different from, I go to a Christian school or I work in a Christian institution. Have you received Jesus as your light? And if you are a believer, how are you testifying by your lifestyle, the way you live, and by your words that Jesus is the light of the entire world? Like, would people have the notion that, that Jesus is only for people that are just like you? Or, or would they understand from you that light is shining out into darkness to all ethnicities, to all the world, that Jesus is the light of the world, that he is the answer for every human being that walks the planet. That is the declaration, and it is a stunning declaration. And with it comes a promise, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, it means you're, you're trusting him, you're relying on him as your shepherd, your, your Savior. I mean, when you follow something uh, down a, a, a path, you're, you're acknowledging that that person knows where he's going and you want to be with that person. You're acknowledging Jesus as your Savior, as your, as your Master, as your Lord. You're not going to strike out on your own path. You're going to follow the path where He leads. More than any other mentor you may have, you look to Jesus to show you the way. Your mentors will fail you. Your mentors will die. Your mentors will move. Those who teach you and train you, they're not going to be here forever, but Jesus is with you all the days, even to the consummation of the age. Those that follow Jesus, they call them disciples, deny themselves and take up their cross. Why would they do that? Why would you deny yourself? Why would you take up a, an instrument of suffering in the will of God? Why would you do that? Because you're, you're acknowledging that, that following Him is the best possible way to live life, that, that it's worth whatever it costs you to follow Him because He's leading where you want to go. You're, you're acknowledging that you're not captain of your own fate. What a foolish notion. We've barely arrived on the planet. Look at history. We're a blip on the screen. And it's nothing. All of history is nothing compared to eternity. Why would you be captain of your own fate? It's not that you don't have your responsibilities, but captain, really? You don't... You don't have a clue as to where you're going. You can't, we can't predict the weather, even with all our machines. 
It's acknowledging you're not captain of your own fate. You're no longer living a life self-absorbed and self-directed. You are following Jesus because of faith in him. You are relying on what he taught. You're not counting him to be a liar. You're counting him to be telling you the truth, something you can bank on. You live according to what he promised, what's coming next. You depend on him to bring you safely through each day till you are safely home, looking into the face of God. Those who reject him are those who believe the words of others not him. They're those that rely on other means of making it, not him. It's as simple as that. And I think of the words from the movie, choose wisely. Choose wisely. Who do you want leading you through life? Someone like Jesus or all the other pretenders? Whoever trusts Jesus this way, no matter who you are, no matter your past, no matter your hang-ups, will not walk, will not live your walkabout daily life in darkness. By definition, you cannot trust darkness. That's why you stumble in the dark. But when you follow Jesus, you're no longer groping your way along. You are following the light of the world. You are living in His light. He, he shows you the way. He leads you in paths of righteousness, straight paths. He, he will never, ever leave you or forsake you. He is with you to the consummation of the age. There will never be a day where you say, I shouldn't have followed Jesus. Not a billion years from now. In fact, when you get to that stage, you will be high-fiving that you did, that you followed Jesus, that he drew your heart. You'll be, you'll be overwhelmed that God rescued you the way he did. This is the message John writes in his first epistle. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, We have something in common with him. We have life from him. While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. We expect to say fellowship with God, but first he says with one another. And then the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's a camaraderie, there's a we're walking this journey together kind of culture that happens among believers who are walking in the light, who are following Jesus, who, who acknowledge that, that, that he's the one directing our lives. If I, if I choose to rebel against him, if I choose not to rely on him, then I turn toward the darkness and I practice darkness. This is why you can tell who's actually a believer? Are they walking in light or are they walking in darkness? And some of you that may be struggling intellectually, I guarantee you the problem is not your intellect. The problem is the darkness that you've given yourself to instead of the light. If you will walk with Him, you'll have light. If anyone's willing Christ has already said this. We looked at this. Anyone's willing to do the will of the Father, you will know whether my doctrine's from Him. You will know whether it's true. 
So instead of walking in darkness, if you follow Jesus, you have as a present possession forever the light of life. Death no longer reigns in you. You've been given life from God. You've been resurrected spiritually. Sin no longer reigns. Falsehood no longer reigns. Light dispels darkness. So if you believe Jesus is the light of the world, what darkness have you let get a foothold in your life? You know, life is a struggle. We're sinners by birth and by choice, and even when we're born again, we, we fight the old man. We, we fight against doing the wrong thing. Don't give yourself to the darkness. Fight the darkness. Don't, don't turn from the light. If you're trying to figure things out, don't turn from the light into the darkness. You can't figure out anything out in the dark. So what, what part of your life have you given to the darkness? Turn away from it to the light. Would those who know you best testify that your life shines with the life light of Jesus? Why would they say that, or, or why wouldn't they say that? Is, is it evident that Jesus, the light of Jesus, is in you? Later, he's going to say, you're the light of the world because of his light being in us. In what ways are you living your daily life leaning into the light of life instead of filling your mind and heart with the darkness? We, we live in a time when, the, when all the falsehoods, all the darkness is immediately accessible to us. If you give yourself through those connections to the darkness, you, you will have the results of darkness in your life. Walk in the light. Embrace the light. Let light shine, and whatever's not light, turn from it. Well, the third thing that we see in our passage, and this is the bulk of, of where the story is carried is the denial from the Pharisees. Verse 13, the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, the Pharisees are trying to use the Scriptures against Jesus. They are known for their study of the Bible. They believe it's inerrant. They believe in miracles and angels and the resurrection. But the vocal majority of them do not believe in Jesus. They would have been well aware of the significance of Jesus making this declaration at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. They would have known well the prophecies of Isaiah. But they do not pursue that line of questioning. Instead, they tap into a requirement in a court of law that every allegation has to be confirmed by at least two witnesses. Now, that requirement doesn't mean that a single witness is inherently a liar but that in legal matters, you have to have confirmation by at least a second witness. They make the leap that Jesus is an unreliable witness, a liar, because he's talking about himself. It's a legal technicality thrown up to avoid dealing with what Jesus has just said. Well, Jesus first responds by underscoring that his testimony is from firsthand experience. By the way, if you 
if you want a legitimate witness in a court of law, better be firsthand testimony, not hearsay. So what Jesus is presenting is not hearsay evidence. He's not quoting some scholar. He is testifying not merely to the appearance of reality. He says in verse 14, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, and you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Jesus is teaching from the unique perspective of having come from heaven to earth. He has come on mission, and once he's completed his mission, he will return to heaven. Nobody else in history can make that claim. Came from heaven, went back to heaven. He also makes the point that their ignorance of this reality makes them incapable of making accurate judgment. They are not reliable witnesses themselves because they don't know what they're talking about. They, they haven't witnessed this. They are judging merely by appearances. Jesus was not trained in their schools. He doesn't have their stamp of approval. He is not wealthy or powerful in terms of the world that they control. And he does not subscribe to their club rules. He's not impressed by their external pretense of righteousness because he sees their hearts. He knows their intent. They cannot fool him as they fool the rest of the public. And remember, they were very popular at this time. When we say Pharisee, it's almost like a cuss word. Not then. They were very popular. They were considered paragons of holiness. And, and in a lot of ways, they seemed very exemplary. But Jesus knew otherwise because he knew who they were on the inside. He says to them in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. A year earlier, here in Jerusalem, Jesus had declared that the Father has delivered all judgment to the Son. So why does he say here, I judge no one? That's a little puzzling. Well, first... Jesus does not judge in the way that the Pharisees did by mere appearances, the externals of religion. And there is that contrast he's making. He knows the heart. Second, it is not yet the time for Jesus to act as a judge. He has come as the Savior. And right now, his mission is to testify to the way of salvation. Third, his judgment is not merely his own judgment. It is perfectly aligned with the Father who sent him as is everything Jesus does and says. And that's going to lead to a further point of refutation of the Pharisees' objection. Jesus appeals to the very requirement which they used to sidestep listening to him. He says in verse 17, in your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. In other words, if you men want to argue courtroom technicalities, even that won't get you off the hook. Now, Jesus had already made the same point a year earlier in John chapter 5. He pointed to the witness of John the Baptist. He then cited the witness of the Father through the miraculous works the Father gave him to do. And finally, he cited Scripture itself as testifying to him, including Moses, in whom he put, they put their trust. Remember, he said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. And remember that the incident the year earlier that led to the whole interchange 
was his healing a man miraculously who'd been an invalid for 38 years. And he did it with only words, rise, take up your bed and walk. Jesus wasn't just mere talk. The whole reason they were having the discussion was that he was more than mere talk. But he did it on the Sabbath. And that angered them. Never mind the astonishing display of compassionate power, he broke the rules of the Pharisees' man-made tradition about the Sabbath. Who cares if he set a paralyzed man free? Beware those who can't see past man-made traditions and trends to the obvious display of God's power. Jesus has multiple witnesses to who he is. The Old Testament prophecies, John the Baptist, miraculous works, words from the Father himself, and later on there will be a host of eyewitnesses who testify around the world regarding what he said and what he did. He's not just making it up. What he says has been prophesied, and what he says and does has been verified by multiple witnesses. You can't just throw that kind of testimony out of court. You can't claim to want the truth about Jesus and then dump all the firsthand evidence. That's not honest. But these dishonest men are undeterred. They get cheeky. They say to him in verse 19, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Now, they knew that Jesus was talking about God the Father when he referred to his father. They knew that. They knew that from a year ago. They knew that. A year earlier, they wanted to kill him, not just because he did miracles on the Sabbath, but because he made himself equal with God by calling God his father. So, I mean, listen to the question. It doesn't even make sense. They want Jesus to have God the Father stand before them in visible physical reality. If he's going to be your witness, Jesus, produce him in front of us here. They are playing games. God is spirit, and they know it. But I'm reminded of what Jesus reiterated to his disciples in the upper room the night he was betrayed. Think about these words. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. So his, his request is very different from this sarcastic response of, of the Pharisees. But Jesus says to him, have I been so long with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The Pharisees had quipped insincerely, show us your father. But the reality is that they were looking at the visible, physical manifestation of the father when they looked on Jesus. 
He is the only one who has shown us physically in time the Father. They were looking at the light of the world, but they chose blindness. They turned into the darkness. They didn't want the light. They preferred pretense. They preferred temporal power. They preferred to leave their sin covered. They preferred to reign over their own lives. They would not bow even to God himself. This reminds us of what John said earlier in John 3. This is the judgment. This is the crisis. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. When we give ourselves to sin, sin has a way of taking over our lives. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So you can throw out your little cheeky objections to trusting in Jesus. You know, trick questions like, can God make a stone that he cannot lift? You can find multiple things that are hard to explain, like the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. You can stump sincere Christians who are trying to share the truth with you. You can congratulate yourself with every aha moment and every little gotcha. But don't forget who holds your life breath in his hand. You can wish God out of existence, but he's still there. Your life still hangs on air. When God shuts the air off, you're gone. All God has to do is cut the electric impulse that makes your heart beat and you're done. Don't forget that that your, that your clever stonewalling of gospel claims will be nothing but evidence for your condemnation when you stand before God. Then it will be too late, and I guarantee you, you won't be joking then. In fact, God says that, that every mouth will be stopped when you stand before God and are judged by His perfect law. Look, Jesus has given you all the evidence that you need. He has given you everything that you need. If it doesn't suit you, then you will die in your sins, and there will be no escape. Your arguments will not impress the God who created you, who sustains you right to this hour, who gives you life and who takes it, who will be your judge and executioner at the end of your days. And the tragedy is this, that he could have been your Savior and Lord. So what arguments from you or others against receiving the testimony of Jesus are actually efforts to sidestep dealing with His call to follow Him? Are you actually wrestling with what Jesus says and what Jesus has done? And what friends who thus far have refused Jesus do you need to encourage to get honest about why they're resisting him. And I want to encourage you, you know, the more you can show them Jesus, the more you can just open up the Scriptures and let them see Jesus, the, the better off they will be. Now, we look at this scene with some level of dismay that human beings 
especially those who are supposed to be champions of biblical religion, would be so unbending in their resistance to the Son of God Himself. We live in a world where we see this kind of rebellion everywhere, and I mean everywhere, not just, you know, people that we consider bad people, but I mean right in among us. Even those we want to trust prove untrustworthy. But not to fret and not to worry. Verse 20. Here we see invincibility. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The treasury was the most populated area of the temple where both men and women attended. Hundreds and hundreds heard Jesus testify. To this date, that number has been multiplied a thousandfold. Among them were those who believed or would believe. Even members of the party of the Pharisees would end up trusting in Jesus. Even those who persecuted the early church. For instance, Paul the Apostle who ended up writing half the New Testament. But here in Jerusalem where Jesus is speaking in the temple is where the seat of the power of darkness was. For Jesus to teach this way publicly in the temple and not be arrested when these men who are so powerful hated him so much, it's downright shocking. It's unbelievable. It's like, how could, how could this even happen? Unless... Jesus is actually telling the truth about who he is, where he came from, and what he came to do. And if he's telling the truth, it all makes sense. It makes sense why nobody stopped him. It makes sense why nobody arrested him, and nobody could, because his hour had not yet come. We can grow greatly discouraged at the resistance to Jesus, at all the lies and tricks to avoid dealing with the truth of the gospel of Christ. But Jesus will not fail in his mission to save his people, no matter the opposition. God still rules the timetable. Jesus will go to the cross on schedule, not a day too soon or a day too late. He will accomplish our redemption. He will rise from the dead. He will ascend to heaven. He will send the Holy Spirit to indwell every believer. He will intercede for the saints to this very day, and he will return that they may dwell with him. He will see them safely home into his eternal kingdom. He cannot and he will not fail those who have the light of life through him. That's why John said in the first chapter, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So when are you tempted to grow fearful or discouraged by the many who resist or oppose Jesus. Think about the kinds of things that trigger that response in you. How can you let God's lordship over history and the sure success of redemption keep you faithfully declaring the gospel no matter what? Fretfulness does not fit faith. There's no reason to fret. His hour had not yet come. Everything's going to happen according to its timetable. God wins. Christ wins. Those that are in him are safe forever. So come. Come to the light of the world. 
follow Jesus, leave the darkness behind, bask in the light of life. What a declaration and promise. Despite the denials, Jesus is invincible. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and Lord, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for making him known to us. Thank you for seeing to it that the eyewitness accounts were preserved and that we can read them in our own language, and, and we can come to know Jesus for who he actually was, the people that, that knew him and walked with him, and, and God, that we can set our minds on what he taught and what he did and find every reason to trust him completely. God, help us not fall prey to the arrogance, smugness, deceptiveness of the Pharisees and those like them that that preferred their own self-control, their own self-rule to yielding to the light of life. God, may we walk in the light to your glory. Thank you. Thank you for shining on us through Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.